is a massive, profound asymmetry, imbalance in actual people's knowledge, understanding, information, and insight about one another. But we'll lessen that deficit today by listening to and learning from His Royal Highness, Pencil Tom Bimkhard, and not the disease, and not the Rahman also. Please welcome him to the podium. Shaped into a modern military 
that is able to handle and deal with the threats that are uh, in the area. Now, uh, this, this armed forces that, that we have in, in Saudi Arabia was from the beginning designated as a defensive and, and, and what I mean by defensive is that its role is basically to defend the borders of Saudi Arabia. Its role is basically, and, and I've listed just a few of them here, but defense of, of, the, of, of the homeland, defense of the people, uh, defending our national interests and our resources, and uh, defending the, the, the neighbors uh, of, of Saudi Arabia and uh, other countries that we have a defense agreement with, among other things. But the emphasis here is that it is a defensive armed forces. That's not to say we don't have an offensive capability. We do have a defensive capability. There is no military in the world that is purely defensive. There's no armed forces that is just defensive. You don't just sit there and become a bullet catch and hope that uh, nobody uh, goes through. Once the first bullet is fired, then basically it's, it's a war and there's offense and defense. What I mean by a, a, a defensive armed force is that we do not seek to become an expansionist country. We are not a country that has a, a, a revolutionary idea that we want to export. We are not a country that that uh, wishes to project far, uh, to project power to to, uh, to, to far off uh, lands and and, and and influence these countries by military power. No, Saudi Arabia would much rather use its political, diplomatic. Uh, economic influence to solve disputes, to solve problems, uh, and would leave uh, military power as a last resort. The issue here that I would like to explain and talk about is what has started to come up, and I start to, I've started to hear and notice and read uh, in, in a lot of different outlets, and I've been asked personally about this is what happened to Saudi Arabia's defensive uh, position. Saudi Arabia has changed. Saudi Arabia has decided to flex its muscles, to use its military power. And, uh, and my point here is that Saudi Arabia uh, did not just all of a sudden decide to use its military power to flex its muscles. Because the question is always, Saudi Arabia has always been shy to use its military power, timid. I think that is a very um, short-sighted, uh, uninformed statement about the Saudi armed forces. The Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia has never, ever been shy about using its armed forces. But, as I said, it will leave it as a last resort. But, 
when the national interests of Saudi Arabia and all the things I, 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 I stated here are threatened, one or all, then Saudi Arabia has no qualms whatsoever in using its armed forces. And if you go back to history, as far back as 1948, when Saudi Arabia formed its modern armed forces, we have been involved in every single military operation within the Arab world as part of a coalition. In every single Arab state conflict, we have been a part of that. In the 1950s, when the UK, France, and Israel decided to seize the Suez Canal, Saudi Arabia was one of the first countries to come to the aid of Egypt as well as the United States. It came to the aid of Egypt against its allies. We have prevented the annexation of Kuwait twice. I believe most people in this room, except my Kuwaiti friends, will know that Saudi Arabia, uh, the, the, the prevailing knowledge here is Saudi Arabia came to the defense of Kuwait in 1991, 1990. That's not true. Saudi Arabia uh, uh, went it alone in the 1960s during the reign of King Saud, the Abdelaziz, to defend Kuwait from the Iraqis who were trying to annex at that time Kuwait. We have had numerous border conflicts. And we have never had a problem with using our armed forces. Most of our border problems were with Yemen. Both the government at times and times tribal issues. But we never shy away from the battle. When Iran tried to intimidate us during the early years of, 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 the, uh, of the revolution during the 1980s, and they started sending their aircrafts, we showed them exactly what would happen if they tried to incur into our, into our airspace. We shot them their aircraft down, and they never tried it again. So we do not have a problem with using our forces. But we are very specific on when do we use our forces, and we try to exhaust all possible avenues first. And today is no different. The reason our armed forces are being today are being used today is there is a clear and present danger to the security of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and its allies. And that is why we are using uh, our forces. <coughs> So the defense strategy hasn't changed. What changes, and this is every military person will tell you is a normal thing, and what is an evolving thing, and something that we always consider and, and revisit and, 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 and look at, is our doctrine. Because doctrine is dependent or it is developed based on the threat, what is the present threat that, that we have, and what is the future and the projected threat. Now, in my opinion, uh, 
There are several things that will drive Saudi Arabia today uh, to revisit our doctrine and uh, <coughs> maybe look at developing our present uh, doctrine that we have. So, some of the points that I think will drive Saudi Arabia and the Saudi Ministry of Defense to look at its, its, uh, its doctrine is, of course, what we perceive as a disengagement of the West in the Middle East, in the problems of the Middle East. Uh, the, the Iranian incursion into the, the affairs of a lot of Arab states. Um, there are, of course, we have failing states. We have non-state actors that are popping up everywhere. Um, the, the threat of a nuclear Iran. Now, all of these things are things that are going to drive the Saudi Ministry of Defense to revisit our doctrine, look at it, and change it where it needs to be. And, in that, and those changes are going to involve the number of armed forces that we have, the type of weaponry that we need to buy, the type of training that we, are, we need to give our, our people. And the way I see that, or the points that I see that are going to determine how our uh, doctrine is going to develop, uh, I think that um, there might be some issues like the conventional capabilities that are uh, available in, in the area around us, uh, some of the spread of unconventional threat, that being uh, unconventional threat by nuclear, chemical, biological uh, weapons, which we have already in the Middle East. We have a lot of countries that have uh, chemical and biological weapons. We have an Israel that has nuclear weapons. And we have an Iran that, is, that has the potential of having a nuclear weapon. And we have the other side of, unco of, of unconventional weapons, which, which is the unconventional, uh, uh, which is the, the, the non-state actors, the insurgents, the terrorists that are popular everywhere. Due to the instability and due to the violence that has, has happened post Arab Spring and post uh, Iraq war, the, the, the level of violence has, has increased tenfold in the area. It's shocking to us than what we see. And uh, that is something that we know we are going to have to deal with. And the disengagement that we see by the West tells us that more of this that we have, have done this time with the Arab coalition to, 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 to reinstate the legitimate government in Yemen is going to have to happen more often. We are going to have to take care of ourselves. Uh, and there is just no other way about it. We are going to have to take care of uh, what's happening in, in our neighborhood. If other countries want to join in, we are more than happy. We are, we're not going to exclude anybody. But we can't sit around and just accept what's going to happen to us. And I think that 
the, the leadership in Saudi Arabia, or I, I know the leadership in Saudi Arabia understands this. We have, uh, we have built our armed forces over 40, 50 years. What you see today at the ability of Saudi Arabia to lead, organize a coalition that has more than 10 countries involved, the logistical capability, the organizational capability, the interoperability, the communications capability, all of this did not just happen overnight. This is a culmination of Saudi Arabia's diligent building of its armed forces, learning from experience, from, in, from participating with countries like the United States and other uh, allies on how to build coalitions, how to fight in, as part of a coalition. And I think this demonstrates that Saudi Arabia has not been sitting idle and it's not been uh, uh, just uh, going through the motions. It has learned. We have had, like I said, a lot of experience in combat. Although a lot of people don't believe it or don't, don't have heard of us having experience. But every single person I think I know in our armed forces has been involved in some kind of military operation and has had experience. And we have learned from that experience. We have learned from our failures and we have built on our successes. And I believe our capability to lead this kind of, uh, of, of coalition is a, is, is, a, is a perfect example of that. And I believe that the present leadership, specifically in the armed forces, know and are capable of moving the armed forces in Saudi Arabia to the next level. You have a young leadership, you have a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of drive, well-educated, and there is nothing, I think, that prevents us from moving forward, moving our armed forces to a level that is needed today to lead, lead the Middle East. Saudi Arabia is perfectly placed to be, and we are, whether people want to believe it or not, a major player in the Middle East. That is not to be ignored. We are one of the most wealthy countries. We have one of the most stable governments. And stability, I would add, does not come, and I think the Arab Spring has proven this, does not come by tyranny, by force. It comes by the acceptance of the people. Saudi Arabia's government is not there because it is a tyrannical government. Uh, it's not the demon, like Dr. Anthony has explained. It's there because the people of Saudi Arabia want it. Regardless of what people might uh, write and try to explain here in the West that Saudi Arabia is an oppressive and very tyrannical government, we would not be here. We would not, the government of Saudi Arabia would not be here today if the people of Saudi Arabia, who are the most concerned, and who are the people who have the right to accept or uh, disagree or deny the government being in place, 
accept the government of Saudi Arabia. I want this government to 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 win because it is a government that rules by the cultural, religious, uh, social uh, norms that are agreeable to the people of Saudi Arabia. And I think if you go and see the different governments in the Middle East that were overthrown, you will find the whole spectrum of different governments. Some are tyrannical, dictatorships, uh, that have been so bloody and, and, and have oppressed its people for so long. And we used to think that there is no way this is going to be a revolution against this government. Yet, revolutions happen. So, the government of Saudi Arabia is there by the will of the people. The people accept it. So we have a very stable government. We have a lot of, uh, of wealth. And that is something we are blessed with. We thank God every day for the wealth that we have. But more importantly, we are the center of the Islamic world. We have Mecca and Medina, and we, regardless of what people are trying to, to market in, 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 in a lot of media, we are the ones that are trying to control radicalism and fighting radicalism all over the world. And I think the track record of Saudi Arabia from, from even the mid-90s, back before you guys had September 11th here, or you dealt with, with, with terrorism here, we were dealing with terrorism in Saudi Arabia. In 2003, we had we were, we, were, we were attacked vigorously by the, the, the people that some media outlets and some uh, people are, are, are saying that we are the sponsors of. How could we be the sponsors of people that are attacking us? And we, have, and, uh, we are one of the few countries that were able to eradicate Al-Qaeda completely out of Saudi Arabia. And then, what happens? We get Al-Qaeda out of Saudi Arabia, Daesh pops up. And Daesh popped up for a reason. If it wasn't allowed to have, if, if the instability in that area where Daesh popped up was not allowed to happen, Daesh would not have happened. But it did. And now we are being attacked by those same people, again. And our armed our security forces are combating them every single day. And I think we're doing a pretty good job at it. And hopefully we'll continue to do a pretty good job at it. But that, those are some of the reasons why Saudi Arabia is going to be, and is going to be looked at by a lot of its neighbors to lead in the future. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what makes Saudi Arabia relevant today and in the future. Thank you very much.
we have a lot of questions, <laughs> as one might imagine. Uh, at the end of the session, uh, in the back of the room, uh, Kaylee Bolt, if you can raise her hand, uh, will help you if you need any uh, publications. We have about uh, five, five of them that have to do with these topics that you may find of interest. And if you, we run out of them, um, give Kaylee your name and we'll make sure that you receive them either online or through mail or both. Um, most of the questions that we have don't have um, the beginning with a W. <laughs> Even though the W questions are tough, what needs to be done, who needs to do it, why does it need to be done, when does it need to be done, where will we be if we do it, where will we be if we don't do it, and sometimes even whether something needs to be done because as they say, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But the most difficult ones that keep people awake are policymakers, decision makers, analysts, and those in the business of intelligence, information gathering, and assessment of the how questions. It's tough to answer a how question without a price. Uh, one person may say, I've got the solution at a cabinet meeting. The person across the table says, no, you can't do that. If you do that on the six o'clock news, you will be killed because you said you would never do that. And you said it as recently as two weeks ago in Chicago, where we are at the White House. Uh, so that person shuts up, and someone else says, ah, not the way we can do it. And that sounds very persuasive, and then someone else says, but where are the resources? We don't have the financial resources, we don't have the human resources, we don't have the logistical or the operational resources, as uh, the Royal Highness indicated, uh, about this coalition of the 10 countries there. And then yet someone else will say, well, we can do it this way. And then the answer to that will be, no, well, no we can't, because we would be alone. And alone abroad is where one never wants to be. So the how questions um, are the ones that um, most people have submitted us here, and I'll try to do what I can to uh, Ask them, and some of them I'll, I'll, uh, I'll fuse or I'll uh, combine because they have to do with uh, uh, the same kind of topic. All right, here's um, a multifaceted uh, question regarding EM. Okay, and you can answer in whatever sequence you want, uh, your Alanis, and you can duck or dodge or fudge question. People in this room are accustomed to that. <laughs> Saudi Arabia has reportedly rebuffed several ceasefire proposals of Yemen that have been accepted by the Houthis, the U.S. and Iran. How, how could this be? That's one. Um, does Saudi Arabia have a coherent defense, uh, how coherent is Saudi Arabia's defense strategy? Uh, to deal with uh, the Houthis 
and with ISIL, or Daesh, or Bilal uh, Sham, or Jabhat Nusra, these other offshoots and radical groups, or Al Qaeda in uh, the Arabian uh, Peninsula. Um, what capabilities, technologies are Saudi Arabian forces looking for to be used in the region? And how has the coalition fighting in Yemen changed Saudi Arabian priorities, if at all? Uh, one last one here, because these feed into each other. Uh, how is it that intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance groups have um, had gaps or divisions uh, learning uh, about the conflict in Yemen. How can you um, suggest what operational and equipment priorities might be needed in the next few years? So uh, equipment, uh, priorities, uh, what about the ceasefire? How coherent is your defense strategy? And uh, how would you say or assess Saudi Arabia's capabilities and technologies in terms of its needing, but it may not have yet regarding Yemen? Okay. Um, Rebuff ceasefire. Um, the, the, I don't know where the information came from, but um, Saudi Arabia has actually allowed for humanitarian uh, ceasefires, uh, several happen, uh, where we have uh, uh, abided by the terms of the ceasefire, and uh, the Houthis uh, choose to uh, to disregard uh, that uh, those terms, and uh, they would start firing. Uh, and attacking border posts, and uh, uh, as well as um, attacking their own people. And, uh, and I, I don't know where, uh, uh, I don't know of a ceasefire that was proposed by anybody, and we said no. So that is that is that is what that is as far as my information uh, I have. Um, a coherent uh, defense strategy to deal with uh, future threats. Um, I think that that is something um, I maybe touched on briefly in, in, in my brief. Yes. Uh, Saudi Arabia is going to look at the threats, and uh, that will determine uh, what the present threats and future threats, uh, projected threats. From non-state actors and as well as uh, uh, states that are uh, around us, that could be a, a, a danger, or we see a development in that country that in the future uh, these countries could be a threat, and that will determine. And I think this will answer, of course, the equipment uh, issue and the intelligence uh, capability issue. Um, that will determine the type of equipment, the type of training uh, that. Uh, that we are able to do. But the point I would like to show and that uh, to, to, to point out here, and that shows Saudi Arabia's uh, you know, uh, uh, forward uh, planning in terms of an event assessment. Uh, we were not, 
until the 1990s, uh, early 1990s, Saudi Arabia was not very big on, uh, on uh, 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 its soft capabilities. I remember talking to a, a lot of conventional uh, commanders at the time, and this is, by the way, the same growing pains that the United States Armed Forces went through after Vietnam. Uh, that soft units, or special operations units, special forces units, uh, were no longer relevant. And that was the Cold War uh, era where uh, conventional was, was the, the trend. The bigger, the better. Uh, uh, stealth and uh, small ninja type kind of units uh, stalking in the dark with, uh, you know, all of their fancy tricks, that was never, you know, painted faces, that's, that was never ever going to happen again after Vietnam. Uh, I remember distinctly, and this is uh, maybe uh, something that I've never said to, to anybody, but uh, the guy is no longer in, in the service, but I remember talking to a very senior military uh, commander in Saudi Arabia uh, in the 1990s, where we were just beginning to, to the Navy was beginning to develop its, its special operations. And, uh, and he looked at me, and we were doing a demonstration in front of the, the late Prince uh, Sultan, who was the Minister of Defense at the time, uh, in, in Khamis Mishir, in, in the south. And we were doing a demonstration, and he just looked at him, shaking his head, and uh, he said, um, what a waste. And I looked at him, and I said, uh, I was, of course, only a near Navy uh, lieutenant, which is a captain of the army at the time. And uh, he was, uh, let's just say, a lot, a lot higher ranking than me. And uh, I said, so what do you mean? Uh, what, why is the waste? And he said, um, uh, I would much rather put $40 million into a tank than invest $40 million in you guys. Uh, then invest forty million dollars in you guys, you know. So I was like, uh, "Yeah, I'm glad the decision is not yours." <laughs> in nineteen two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, that same man was ordering the development and spending a lot of money on special operations. Uh, so, uh, like I said, that man was. Strictly against small units like mine, unit and, and paying all the money into that, and very conventional tanks and, and artillery and aircraft. God bless. Uh, and then that same man was one of our biggest supporters, and had uh, uh, he's a great man. He had the the the, the, the greatness in him. To, to understand he was wrong. And at that time, this time and date, Saudi Arabia needed that type of, of, of forces. And, and he put a lot of money into developing uh, the, the special forces, and specifically the army special forces. Because the army special forces actually was created after the Navy special forces. There was no army special forces before 2003 in Saudi Arabia. There was an airborne brigade but there was no army soft, army special operations. And today, they are leading the operations in Yemen. Highly trained, highly, uh, very professional people. Uh, I have 
had the pleasure of working with them. I had, had the pleasure of commanding them during the, uh, the first war, uh, the Houthi War in 2009. They are a very, very good bunch of men. Uh, and we worked with them seamlessly. Uh, and I think it is a, 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 a uh, it is to their credit that they have reached and the credit of their command. They have reached to that to, to, to that level. It's Fahad bin Turki, General Fahad bin Turki. He is the commander of the deputy commander of the army, uh, commander of the uh, army special forces. Uh, he was also trained here in the United States. Uh, he was actually an ROTC captain. I think he graduated from ROTC here in the United States. He was in army uh, special forces, army rangers, army airborne. He was he graduated from here from the United States, and he is now in command. Definitely a man that knows a hell of a lot more than I do on special operations and unconventional warfare. And um, they are definitely doing a very good job, uh, as well as the Emirati uh, Special Forces, Bahrain Special Forces. The guys, uh, I've had the pleasure of, of working with them. Good people, very good people. And uh, damn hard fighters. And uh, they're all doing a, a great job. So that. I think answers the question that we are uh, projecting what we need, and we are going forward uh, with with what we need in mind the equipment and the training. No, that's great. That's a new thing you touched on them all. Um, going to switch to an economic one, then we'll come back to the uh, defense ones. Um, but this is related to the defense. How are budget considerations, the growing deficit and your budget, and the decline in the price of oil, influencing your decision to buy more expensive American weaponry than perhaps uh, less expensive weaponry from France, from Great Britain, maybe from Russia? Um, that's a very good question. I was warned yesterday about something like this. Oh boy, I can't add the two and two together. I'm not an economist. But anyway, I'll do my best. Um, Saudi Arabia has gone through uh, this before. Uh, if you remember in the 1980s, oil prices were very low. Um, we had $20 a barrel or even less. And less. And, uh, we learned to tighten the belt and uh, move on. Uh, we went through uh, a lot of uh, lifestyle changes that we had to go through uh, in order to accommodate that, uh, that period. Uh, and uh, we adapted. Our armed forces adapted as well. Uh, we are very... Uh, when it comes to Getting the most out of the weapons that we have, we're pretty much we're pretty good at that. I I, I know for a fact that we know how to <coughs> out of our out of our weapons. So if we need to to slow down our procurement, uh, then we will, and we will make do with what we what with, with what we have. But um, uh, as long as we have the ability, we will definitely upgrade and uh, and, uh, and buy different weapons. Uh, but we are always looking for the best 
bang for the buck. Excuse me, using your own uh, metaphors. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we look for what we and, and, and who said that European weapons are cheaper than. Uh, oh my god, you should go try and. Uh, are there any French people? <laughs> you should try dealing with the French. It's very, very difficult and it's very, very expensive to buy uh, European weapons. So, no, it's not, uh, it's not a good idea. Uh, thank you. Let's, uh, we'll switch back to uh, Iran for a minute. In recent uh, criticism of Saudi Arabia's intervention in Yemen at the United Nations General Assembly this last month, Iranian President Rouhani mentioned that it only worsened the relationship between Riyadh and Tehran. In light of this and the possibility of Iran becoming a this question says global leader in the oil sector. How would you um, assess your projections on the near and longer term Saudi Arabian Iranian relationship? Okay. Uh, in, in terms of Iran and Saudi Arabia dealing with Iran, Saudi Arabia has always. The late uh, Foreign Minister Consuelo Faisal has always stated that we are more than willing to sit down and talk to Iran and, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, for each of us to exchange. And I believe that happened. We, we exchanged you know, our grievances towards each other. And, uh, and, and we've always said that we have no problems with Iran's you know, becoming. Uh, I mean, it's a neighbor. We can't be. At each other, each other's throats forever. It's there. It's not going away. We're there. We're not going away. So we might as well come to to do some kind of agreement. The problem is, is that the Iranian uh, the Iranian message that keeps coming out of Iran is that, and specifically towards Saudi Arabia, I'll get to what they're doing in the rest of the in a minute. But specifically towards Saudi Arabia, even though it's not the official government that states this, but we have these statements coming out from the uh, Revolutionary Guard and from members of parliament saying that the, 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 the Iranian revolution will never be complete until Mecca and Medina are under the control of Iran. And that is, I'm not, I'm not making this up. You can go and research this and look at it, and I'm not trying to, uh, this is fact. They say it. Their in intervention into Arab affairs, uh, Bahrain, uh, Iraq, Syria, Yemen. Let me tell you, let me ask you a question. I always get this, 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 this question about, I mean, what do you have against the Iranians? Why, are they, why should the Iranians not intervene? Well, first of all, they're not very friendly towards us. And they're really, really, comes to Saudi Arabia and what they say to Saudi Arabia. Uh, when someone says, we are going to invade you and take two of your most holy cities, I don't think we can take that at face value. I mean, we have to, we have to watch out when someone comes to Let me ask you this. What did the United States do when Russia decided to put missiles in Cuba? Did you guys just sit around and say, well, it's Cuba. 
computers can do whatever they want. Do you, do you have any right to intervene in what happens in Cuba? Is it part of the United States? But was it a clear and present threat to the security of the United States and the people of the United States? It was, and you could not allow that to happen. When somebody, when Iran decides to take over <coughs> like it has done already in Iraq, we can't just sit around. I mean, it's reality. I'm sorry if some people don't like it, but that is reality. Iran is a threat to us. Iran wants to build a, a, a nuclear weapon, which, oh, by the way, they have 10 years to accumulate riches, and then they can start up again. That's the way we see it. This deal does not guarantee to us, and then nowhere in that deal does it specifically guarantee that Iran will never ever after 10 years have, have, have a nuclear weapon. So what are we supposed to do? Do we, have, do we just uh, sit around and wait for 10 years to finish, to, to finish and then uh, uh, allow Iran to develop a nuclear weapon again? These are things that the international community have to think about. You can't just you know, strike a deal with one side and decide that the other side is just going to have to you know, bear the grin. So in terms of Iran, we would like to have good relations with them. We would like to be peaceful with it. But it has to stop meddling. I mean, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to forget all of a sudden that Iran is directly involved in the organization, the training, and the funding, and the equipping of Hezbollah? I mean, can anybody here honestly deny that Iran has anything to do with Hezbollah? So, again, it's not ceasing and desisting from, from, from supporting uh, terrorist activities around the Arab world, targeted towards Saudi Arabia. So we have to be ready. And until Iran shows good intentions and with actions, not just with words, we're going to be very scared. Right. Um, couple of more questions on Yemen and the Iranian involvement, but not completely uh, the Iran aspect. Um, humanitarian aid flows are reportedly being restricted in the north of Yemen, especially few needed for hospitals and aid distribution by trucks. Uh, how will the coalition address this? respond to that uh, reporting there. And secondly, uh, could you go into greater, how would you go into greater detail about Iran's involvement in Yemen? We know the rhetorical aspect uh, from Iran Revolution. We know the statements of uh, members of the Matras Ashura. We know that the Supreme God, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, Khamenei, has said that the Iranian revolution uh, will continue. And of course, you answer, what, what are we supposed to do when we hear that? And there are other Iranian leaders that have said, we now control four Arab capitals, Sana'a, uh, Damascus, 
uh, Baghdad and Beirut, um, yes, uh, Hezbollah that you, you addressed to. Now you were involved in the 2009-2010 campaign. Can you go specifically more than the rhetoric uh, in terms of logistical support, uh, training of the hotels, um, weaponry, money, uh, asylum, leadership, uh, anything on the details, because this does not come out in the media. Uh, yes, uh, the statement that Iran is involved, uh, but can you get down to some of the details of the actual involvement beyond the rhetoric, beyond the political posturing or statements? Okay, in terms of um, aid to Northern Yemen, uh, Northern Yemen, beyond the borders, they're no longer under our control. Okay, if you want to ask why the, the aid is not getting to hospitals and the people, you have to ask the Houthis. They're the ones who are controlling that area. We have allowed uh, aid shipments to go from all over across our border crossings into Yemen. We have sent uh, aid to the areas that are under coalition control. The government, the legitimate Yemeni government uh, is controlling now. Uh, but, uh, and we have, uh, I remember there was the last time they sent a, a shipment uh, unilaterally by us to, uh, the, um, to the port of media. And uh, it was that the whole shipment was taken over by the Houthis. Uh, uh, so we have no problems whatsoever if it's uh, if it's uh, organized to any aid organization or the UN or anybody to to, to transport the shipment of, of uh, aid. And the government's position or the coalition's position has been this. And if you go back and, and check out the, the, the statements of the spokesman, they've always been consistent. We will let any aid shipments go in. You just have to organize it with the Houthis and make sure that it gets to these hospitals and to these uh, to, the, to the people that, that, that they need. So that Northern Yemen should be organized with uh, with, uh, with the Houthis. Um, the Iranian involvement beyond that. Well, you say for my involvement in the 2009 uh, uh, Then, because that would be first-hand knowledge that you had, but then subsequent to that, uh, up to the present moment, if you well, have such information. I, uh, I, I don't have a lot of um, insider information today. I'm, like I said, I'm no longer in the armed forces, but I see what you see. I mean, there's a the shipment that was uh, seized uh, last week, uh, full of Iranian uh, weapons. Um, the uh, the uh, some of the prisoners, I believe, are uh, Hezbollah and uh, and Iranian. Uh, I know that for a fact, and it's it's, it's out there. Um, in the 2009-2010 conflict. I can't really go into all of the, the operational stuff that, that, that was, uh, was conducted, but I can tell you that 
the Hezbollah influence was very, very evident. Developed uh, upgrading some of their frog missiles. They had some frog missiles that uh, they were trying to uh, adapt the launchers. They didn't have the right launchers for the. uh, And Hezbollah was very, very involved in that. They were there, I can guarantee you they were there. I just can't get into a lot of you know, about that, but they were there. And uh, that, and they were in a facility and that was developing uh, launch uh, platforms for those frog missiles. And that facility was taken care of. And they were there, and we have communication uh, recordings of them and a lot of other uh, information uh, and uh, proof that they were there. So I'm, I, I know in 2009 that, that Hezbollah was there. Uh, and, and today, I can tell you from what we see in the, in the media, weapons, training, uh, there was a lot of, uh, before the war started, there was a lot of um, traffic between Yemen and Iran, where there was uh, a lot of uh, transport, transport of equipment, weapons, and there was a lot of um, advisors, so-called advisors coming into uh, to, to, uh, But there are, there are some Iranians there. All right. Um, if you're comfortable addressing Saudi Arabia and the defense dynamics of its relations with its fellow GCC, countries at the uh, Heads of State Summit last uh, December in Doha, uh, there was an announcement of uh, the intention to establish a unified GCC military command, uh, presumably the headquarters being in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia being the only uh, country in the GCC that neighbors all five of its uh, fellow uh, members there. If you can comment on the uh, likelihood, the prospects, the pros, the con- the difficulties, um, the population or logistical or political or otherwise upon that. So that's on the GCC thing. And what can you, how can you uh, address the question of um, intra-GCC military exercises and training. Um, In the early two or three years of the GCC in the early 80s, there were joint combined exercises in the United Arab Emirates in Oman and the way that then they stopped. But then you had a massive one, I believe uh, last year in August, 130,000 people participated and that, that was bigger than all the others combined. Can you talk about uh, your defense dynamics and cooperation with your fellow GCC countries? What are the lessons learned? What have been the achievements, accomplishments, successes, and what has been frustrating or delaying or obstacles? Okay, here's the whole idea, the the idea behind the GCC GCC countries by themselves are never ever gonna be able to deal with the threat that is arising in Yemen. So, 
the logical uh, solution is to uh, unify uh, our capabilities and, and just, it's a, it's as I would say, in a way, we have to uh, put these forces together. These, four, these different countries come with uh, uh, different capabilities and, 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 and uh, talents that are really beneficial to the, a, 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 a combined uh, or a joint force. They also have their interoperability problems. These countries have uh, their own communication systems, they have their own radar systems, aircraft, uh, their own logistical uh, um, systems that are, have different codes, different uh, methods of, uh, of maintenance and Acquisition of equipment and I mean the spare parts, so that comes with its own. Uh, that's that's um, that is its own. You have training uh, doctrine that is uh, different in some of these countries. Some of them are more um, U.S. based. Some of them are more European uh, based uh, training that causes uh, also some kind of uh, some. The whole task that the command is, is going to be given now is to wrinkle out, uh, you know, to, 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 to iron out these units and make sure that there is interoperability between these forces, try to unify their uh, SOPs, um, and, uh, and, uh, and slowly try to uh, work out these interoperability uh, problems, especially in communications and uh, radar capabilities, because the whole idea is to have a radar dome over the Gulf uh, and uh, protect it uh, using different, uh, using, uh, and try to unify. The problem is how do we, do we, do we link all of these, uh, these, uh, these uh, systems together? So what, so what you can see in the, in, uh, in, the, in the UAE, the, the, the people in Kuwait are seeing the same screen and, and be able to track targets and track targets over uh, different uh, <coughs> airspaces and uh, have more time to deal with the threat. If at one side you can't deal with it, you can deal with it from, uh, from uh, uh, you know, further on down the, down the, uh, the coast. Or Naval capabilities are also a, 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 another issue. I mean, you can't have, I mean, with all due respect to my brothers in Bahrain, it's not expected that Bahrain is going to have a huge name. They don't have the manpower and they don't have the capability to, to do that. But Saudi Arabia, maybe the UAE and Oman can have uh, various uh, uh, capabilities because not one country can do it by, 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 by itself. Kuwait, uh, Qatar, Bahrain uh, will have a different role to, do, to, to play in the, in the Gulf uh, with its uh, maritime capabilities dealing with uh, potential terrorist threats, uh, uh, smuggling. Uh, the, the, being a naval officer, we've had this, this worry for a very long time. Uh, the swarming uh, threat that we have now coming out of uh, Iran, where they swarm vessels with, with 30, 40 small vessels with, um, with, uh, with uh, explosives on And that is a very, very dangerous fact. Smaller, more maneuverable, more capable, 
can deal with the threat having uh, air and, and maritime capability that uh, to interdict and, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, eliminate the threat. So each country comes in with, with, uh, with, uh, with a certain capability that is going to be an add-on and, and, uh, and uh, the benefit to the um, to the this command. But yes, we are going to have some problems, and uh, it's going to take uh, a while to, to, to work that thing, those things out. But I, I think the chances for success are, are, uh, are, are very good. All right. Uh, we'll keep on this kind of theme here, uh, having to do with the intra-regional of Saudi Arabia and its uh, neighbors here. Uh, how could Saudi Arabia assess the utility benefit of installing additional pipelines that would have the kingdoms and other GCC countries' oil exports go through the Red Sea instead of, or in addition to, or as an alternate to the Hormuz Straits? Uh, you have your own east-west pipeline. Kuwait has none. Bahrain has none, Qatar has none outside of the Hormuz Strait. So um, if you would address that. Secondly, you mentioned about the maritime cooperation. Uh, one does not hear nearly as much as one did two, three years ago about maritime piracy in the Gulf of Aden uh, related to Somalia. Uh, and we hear that Oman has played a facilitated role in addressing the economic needs of these uh, families that have their youth engaged in maritime prophecy, and that that's a reason it has declined. But that, uh, how would you explain how that has happened? Um, just those two questions for now. Okay. Um, addressing the first question about the pipelines. Yes. Um, Saudi Arabia has an east-west uh, pipeline, and uh, that pipeline um, is basically designed for that fact that if uh, you can't use uh, the, the, the Gulf for some reason, you could come through the Red Sea. Um, I believe uh, the UAE has the same kind of concept, pumping uh, uh, to the, uh, the, the southern shores of uh, the UAE to the uh, Gulf of uh, Qatar, uh, Kuwait, uh, and uh, Bahrain. Uh, I believe that if the need arises, that they want to pump through the Saudi pipelines, uh, that it's it is more than possible because, I mean, especially with uh, Kuwait, we are linked all the way up to the Kuwaiti border, and we have the joint. Uh, Oil fields between us and them, and they are—they are all going. They're all connected to the climate, <coughs> and they can be joined into the. Uh, so it's just a matter of if they want to, or uh, or they don't. That is that is up to them. I don't think the kingdom has any problem with um, having extra, uh, having them pump through our uh, our pipelines, and if the need uh, arises, then then. We, uh, we would probably uh, have no problems in, the, in doing that. But that hasn't been addressed yet. Uh, but this brings up a very good question. 
Okay, and, and, and being a, a Navy guy, uh, I like to talk about this. The maritime capability. I have, I have always been of the view that Saudi Arabia's front door is south. It's not north. We export and import nearly over 95% of everything through our ports. We, we are blessed to be on two uh, seas, uh, the Gulf and, and the Red Sea. Uh, but, and this is a very big but, uh, we don't have control over any of the access points to these, uh, these, these waterways. Now, Saudi Arabia, and I know that this is part of the, the, the naval uh, doctrine, the kingdom is, 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 is very committed to the freedom of navigation in the waters uh, to and from Saudi Arabia. And it has always been my opinion that Saudi Arabia should be the dominant naval force in the region. We are dependent on those waterways being clear of Piracy of uh, conflict in any kind, and to have open access to international trade. Uh, and for that reason, the kingdom uh, sees that it's in, in its national interests to make sure these, these waterways are And that, uh, I'm sure the Romanis have been very helpful in the, um, in the piracy uh, issue. But uh, I think it's due to the task force that was uh, down there uh, that has been operating uh, diligently for years. And the man is part of that task force. But uh, uh, I don't believe that it's just due to the Romanians giving jobs or uh, giving financial aids to certain families that that uh, the, the piracy issue has, uh, has I think it's due to the work of a lot of good people that have uh, put a lot of hours down there in their task force, in that task force from many nations. Uh, and, and, and I think that is one of the few success stories in coalition where it has helped uh, in, in, in eliminating a threat. Uh, that was in the area. But we, don't, we can't forget that why did that fit initially uh, happen? I mean, the, the pilots didn't just have come out because they wanted to be pilots. There was a, an issue before that. that uh, I don't know if you, uh, you know, have a, you probably understand the issue of the, of the, of the fishing, overfishing, and all yeah, right. and all that. that about that's another story. but. Uh, yeah, they were they were very. The task force was very helpful in eliminating the pirate. Well, you mentioned the pirates here. Some people who have known for a long time know that I'm sympathetic to the pirates, and as much as I used to be a professional baseball player, and <laughs> it was the Pittsburgh Pirates that uh, offered me the most. Um, but I don't regret saying no to those pirates. Um, <laughs> And uh, therefore, I relate to what 
had to say. Um, how do Saudi Arabians view the positives and the negatives of an eventual national compulsory military service? Here we call it the draft, which has been an issue for us as well. And uh, how would you assess the benefits or negative dimensions of a future compulsory armed services program for the kingdom's youth, realizing that uh, the military has been the route for upward professional and social and even economic and leadership mobility for, for many countries. On the other hand, the degree to which the United States has focused on those kinds of elites in other countries has increased the possibility and the actuality of military coup d'etat. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia has had its uh, uh, fair share of uh, debate on your uh, military service. And I think it's, um, there is a lot of acceptance especially by the, uh, the elder generation, uh, for the younger generation to uh, enter military service. Um, I don't think we uh, have a need, uh, as a need to have, uh, the, the military has no problems in recruiting people for the armed forces. So uh, in terms of a, of a, of a pool to, to recruit people, uh, we don't have a problem with, with getting people. We have a lot of people that are willing to, to serve in the military. Uh, it's a very uh, prestigious kind of a position people like to be in the military in Saudi Arabia. So in terms of numbers, that is never going to be a problem, that we have to have people, uh, that we have to draft people to be in the military to to boost up and shore up our numbers. That's never going to be happening. It's more of a social service, really. If it comes down to it, you will find that a lot of people will ask for compulsory service as you know, a way to <laughs> toughen up the kids. Basically, that's it. If you ask the Saudis, why do you want, the ones that want it, why do you want the compulsory, let them come out men. I want them I want my son to be a man. Uh, you know, like okay, but uh, <laughs> it's not uh, it's not like a summer camp or or something that uh, you know there's there's, there's there's a benefit out of this. There has to be a cost benefit uh, issue here that the, the country is going to benefit from training these people and the level of training that we need to give them so that the, com the, the so that the country can benefit is somewhat extensive. It's not just putting a uniform on a guy, on a guy and having him train for 13 weeks and knows how to salute and right face, left face and, uh, and forward march. There has to be something that I'm going to get out of this man and he is going to be a, a part of a larger reserve force that is in some kind of organizational structure for the armed forces that we're going to use them uh, it went in time of need, and they know where to go and know what to do. That is a lot of money. Okay, there's a lot of, the population of Saudi Arabia is big. 
And if you're going to say every kid that, that, uh, that's over 18 or reaches the age of 18 has to do compulsory service, uh, have you seen the demographics of the Saudi uh, population? The majority of 60% is, is, under, uh, is under 18. So we're, there's a, lot of, a hell of a lot of kids that we're going to have to teach, train, equip, uh, feed. That is going to be a tremendous drain on the armed forces. And I think to, to this day, to, uh, we don't need that yet. And if you ask the people why do you want this, it's because I want the kid to man up. Yes, but that only takes like a few, a few months of training. And it's going to cost a lot, and I'm not going to get and, and they don't want them to be in the service for more than a year. You say, okay, listen, I'm going to put him into military service. He's going to do a year and a half of training, training and, and on-job training, where I'm going to assign him to some unit. Okay? And then every uh, summer after that, he's going to have to serve two months a summer and, and, uh, and uh, like one weekend a month. Yeah, it, it suddenly doesn't become a very good idea. And it doesn't have a lot of support. So they want it, yes, but they just want it for the kids to be, uh, you know, toughened up a little bit, and then, and then that's it. In from, from the government's point of view, it's a drain of resources. When we do not have a problem with arming and, and, and manning the, the, the armed forces, when we open up the, the, the recruitment, we have. Uh, you know, uh, we have five academies, Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, National Guard, and the Ministry of Interior. Normally speaking, they will take between two to three hundred per uh, academy. So uh, if we say uh, that's uh, five and each one takes uh, three hundred, that's what, fifteen hundred uh, recruits officers a year, we get over 30,000, over 30,000 every year applying to, to the academies. We get hundreds of thousands every year applying to, to, to be enlisted. So we don't have a problem with recruitment. So I think that is something that the, the government is not really looking at now. Wow, this is a lot of information that uh, one would not ordinarily have and provides insight. Of course, uh, there are a lot of uh, females in the audience, and they might be thinking as they hear what parents want their kids to man up. Uh, how would you answer the question about uh, women and uh, women wanting to women up, or at least... Uh, have the skills or abilities or work in the Ministry of Defense uh, and be considered as part of the nation's armed forces. Um, time for just a short answer to that question, and then I'll close. I think uh, at the time being, uh, there is a, a cultural acceptance, which I think is there is a way to, to involve women in the armed forces. We already have women in the Ministry of Interior, and that's, that's not a problem. Uh, I think uh, if we, in the Ministry of Defense, we have them as well as doctors and, 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 and in the medical service. Uh, of course, frontline troops, everybody knows, I mean, you guys, 
are the first to, to be uh, have a problem and an issue and a debate on, on women in, in front lines, but definitely uh, you guys have them in, in, in other support uh, units. Is there a place for them in, in the kingdom? Like I said, right now we have enough of men that we don't really need. Women are not really needed at the moment. Not that they would not uh, they would not uh, be a contribution. I'm sure we could get uh, you know, they would be a, a positive contribution to the armed forces. But until we have a better cultural acceptance, and by the way, it's not religious. Okay, we've had women accompanying uh, Islamic armies since day one. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with women accompanying uh, from a religious point. It's purely cultural, and I think that is coming, and I don't see why not, but there has to be an acceptance, a cultural acceptance in, in, in the country. And I think well, there would be a positive uh, contribution uh, to, for, for women being in, in, uh, in the armed forces in, in a lot of different uh, jobs that they can definitely uh, excel in, and I don't see any problem with that. to a close while well, we've been talking about um, Saudi Arabia which is uh, a continent almost more than a country uh, has 13 neighbors uh, most Americans think that the United States has two neighbors although you made reference to Cuba and if you live in Alaska there's some leaders there that say they look out every day onto Russia as a neighbor. Uh, so we have uh, half a dozen neighbors, but you have 13. Uh, Iran has 12 or 13 also. So um, yeah, this should focus our analysis as well. Uh, some figures, figures here regarding the, you mentioned the Ministry of Interior, and we didn't talk at all about the Prince Nayef Center for Counseling and Care uh, for uh, suspected or captured uh, terrorists there. And this has been uh, something that the United States has studied closely, and to some degree, uh, the leaders have tried to emulate uh, there's a word that's easier to read and to pronounce recidivism <laughs> than meaning that those that you capture and try to rehabilitate uh, some of them are rehabilitated and others go back to what they were doing but um, we saw the figure of 11,000 suspected terrorists having been brought in or questioned or interrogated um, and some 2,000, these are 2013 figures, 2,000 awaiting trial. So uh, you're quite correct that Al-Qaeda has been stacked out in Saudi Arabia, but we know that quite a few of them have gone to Yemen, which in the northern part is um, uh, quite inaccessible knowledge uh, and understanding unless you live there. You can understand why Yemen would be a beacon for some of them. Uh, so in another session we would perhaps focus on those uh, aspects. The recidivism rate has been I think the lowest in the world. Uh, if my statistics are correct uh, that uh, there have been only 83 
that have gone back to doing what they were doing. And this is from 11,000 uh, that have been uh, arrested. Uh, that's a very low percentage. And of the 83, I believe 11 went back who America had kept in captivity in Guantanamo or some black site uh, elsewhere. Um, so the United States has been involved in this as well, positively and negatively. We both learned a lot from each other's cooperation. One of your slides did talk about bolstering each other's defense capabilities and strengthening each other's interagency relationships. And so in the opening remarks, we talked about uh, uh, established thought, conventional wisdom, received opinion, informed uh, opinion, so to speak. Uh, but here we've had information that's the first time for some people, and that has enhanced insight. And the insights have enhanced uh, knowledge, and that knowledge has enhanced understanding. And the four of them have helped us get closer to wisdom than we were before you came. Thank you, sir.